Well, hi, Praxis. Um, good evening for those of you who are joining us online as well as uh, here in person. I'm thankful that we can gather here uh, tonight. Uh, for those of you who are maybe new, uh, never, who is this guy? My name is Chris. I help oversee Praxis along with Pastor Allen. And as if you already heard, we are continuing with our study in the book of Romans uh, this evening. But I realize that not everyone has been with us since the beginning. So I want to give us a quick recap and summary of what's going on right now. Uh, the end of chapter one in the book of Romans uh, functions like a figurative gun that's kind of pointed towards the Gentiles, condemning them for their descent into darkness and incurring the wrath of God. Uh, you can think of Gentiles as all other ethnicities or people groups who aren't ethnic Jews. And then in chapter two, the gun of condemnation is then turned toward another direction. Paul turns the gun towards his fellow Jews. Now it's important to understand that what we're talking about here, Paul's not talking about, um, he's not trying to be anti-Semitic or, or racist. After all, Paul himself was a Jew from the city of Tarsus and raised in the strict branch of Judaism. He was trained under a famous rabbi by the name of Gamaliel and was a Pharisee himself under this uber-religious sect of Judaism. So what Paul is doing is he's turning towards his people now as one who has trusted in Jesus and saying to them, hey, you, you need the gospel too. You're just as condemned without Jesus as these Gentiles. Privilege won't save you. Why? Well, as we touched on last week, Rob Chin preached and ended on Romans chapter 2, verse 11, where it states that God is impartial. God doesn't play favorites in his judgment, and God doesn't grade on a curve, which brings us to our passage tonight, where Paul's going to demonstrate the consistent fairness and impartiality of God's judgment. And he does so by addressing any disagreements concerning God's fair treatment of Jews and Gentiles. So if you have your Bibles, I would encourage you to please turn with me to Romans chapter 2, verses 12 to 24. I'm going to read our passage for us, and then we'll open with prayer. Romans chapter 2, verse 12 to 24 reads, For all have sinned without the law, will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. On that day when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and, and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, 
do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, um, there is a lot of condemnation in this text, Lord, and it can feel maybe uncomforting for some of us. Yet it is your word, Lord, and it is sharper than any active a sword, sharper than any sword, Lord, and it pierces through our hearts, Lord. And I pray that that would take place today, Lord, and that your spirit would just uh, allow us to see the hurtful truths, but how these hurtful truths are good for us, Lord, so that we might see our need for Christ all the more and desire Jesus Christ and the gospel. We ask these things in your son Jesus' name. Amen. Well, about um, two months ago, I had a free evening where I decided to watch a movie. And my decision was pretty easy. I narrowed it down to two options, either Downton Abbey, the movie, or the more recent Jane Austen novel-based film, Emma. And I decided to go with Emma after having a splendid time, I might add, enjoying Focus Features' Pride and Prejudice uh, many years ago. And many of Jane Austen's novels adopted into period dramas are set in this elite 18th century British society setting, right? And if there's one thing that I've noticed with Jane Austen novels, and I'm probably recalling what I learned in my literature classes growing up, it's this. Uh, the, the, the portrayal of life for this elite hierarchy is centered around parties, walks, trips to very scenic places, apropos for a parasol or a large brim hat, horse carriages and a young debutante playing the piano in her parents' estate. Oh, and who could forget this critical aspect, posturing and demonstrating one's value and worth in a classist society. And, and all of this with the hope of finding a particularly advantageous marriage. The sense of aspirational life could be summed up in one word, privilege. Privilege, as defined in the dictionary, is a special right, advantage, or immunity granted to an, or available only to a particular person or a particular group. And just like the privilege that is analyzed and studied in history when it comes to 18th century elite British life, our passage in Romans today drops us into a world where privilege abounds among the spiritual elite. Those who took great pride in their knowledge of God and what they possessed as a group of people while being prejudiced towards those without this privilege. And tonight we will look at this privilege of the Jews in comparison to the Gentiles, which brings us to our key idea this evening, if you're following along in your notes. The privilege of knowing God does not justify, but instead reveals hypocrisy that will condemn us if we are without Christ. And the first point that we'll look at is this, privileged knowledge does not save. Privileged knowledge does not save, verses 12 to 16. Verse 12 to 13 reads, for all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law for it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. Uh, this standard seems to be skewed in some people's minds. After all, 
Gentiles don't have the law like these Jews. Uh, they don't have the law of Moses and this body of special revelation that make up this, the first five books of the Bible. So how can God say that Gentiles are expected to obey and be judged by a law that they're ignorant of? And so the answer to this question begins to unfold in verse 12, where Paul emphatically states that Gentiles have sinned without the law and will perish. They will perish despite not having this externally or orally uh, given a written law passed down to successive generations that the Jews would have had. Those who have sinned under the laws like the Jews, they will be judged accordance with that law. Their outcome is the same. And the reason for the same outcome and condemnation is given greater support in verse 13. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. Now, that's a loaded statement for many of us to, to kind of to, to hear. Maybe uh, some of you um, who studied Reformed theology before, the doctrines of, gay, uh, doctrines of grace, you might be livid right now to the point where you're foaming at your mouth by that statement, and you probably want to throw your Bibles at me. But understand that Paul still has in mind these religious Jews who look down on, on Gentiles. They're like, you heathens because they have possession of the law. Yet they shouldn't be exalted. They're not in a higher position than Gentiles. Religious people who know God's revealed word don't have the high ground. And the idea needed to sink in for these religious people who thought hearing the law makes one righteous before God. But Paul emphasizes the heart of the matter. What matters is obedience to God's word, not mere possession of it. You see, many religious people boast and esteem in their proficient hearing of God's word. It's a well-known fact that religious Jews hear the law and have it recited orally and have it read to them at a very young age. But what matters is how well you obey the law that will count you just in God's eyes. In other words, if you look to the law to justify yourself as being good and acceptable to God, you better look to obeying it not just hearing it. And Paul calls out this very problematic thinking that some people have. Some people think that they're okay and good by being a professional hearer than a profession doer of God's word. But the reality is this, knowing is half the battle. Imagine for a minute that you're a college student again, okay? As a student, you're responsible for listening to your professor, listening to the lecturer, and you'll likely be responsible and accountable for what you have heard and learned in the form of an exam, test, a project. You sit and listen, but let's say that you're auditing the class. If you're auditing the class, you just sit, you listen to the lectures, but you're not required to take any tests. You're not required to take any exam. You receive no grade at all. You aren't held accountable like these other students for what you heard and were instructed on. And in the same way, these religious Jews, they merely audited and listened to what God had said. They were hearers of God's law, but failed to be doers of it. But God doesn't recognize mere auditors of his word. Everyone is accountable for what he has heard. If one has heard more, there is actually a greater responsibility for what has been heard. And here's the rub. Just like this, these religious people who have a lot of knowledge about God, it can be very easy to point the finger at all those other sinners. It can be very convenient to look at all the evils of the other people in the world who are not like us. 
all the while forgetting to assess our own hearts. A timeless principle that is exuded from these verses that equally apply to us today as professing believers of Jesus is this. Are we mere auditors of God's word? Do we think we are justified by God merely, merely because of church attendance to hear God's word? This passage is a warning against hypocrisy. Rather than standing in a place of judgment uh, and, and looking down on the so-called heathens out there, the question is, are you a hypocrite here in church, the preeminent place to hear God's word? Jesus himself said in Matthew 7, 24 to 27, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who has built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and, the, and, and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who, who builds his house on the sand. And then the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. You see, God's standard isn't hearing the law, possessing it. God's standard is obedience to his law, to his moral precepts. That is the basis by which God will judge. Although it must be said that he is not claiming that anyone actually meets the standard perfectly. He'll get to that later on chapter 3. But we must ask at this point, in what way do these Gentiles obey a law that they don't have? Verse 14 writes, For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, though they do not have the law. Other than the Jews, all the other people, groups, and ethnicities would not have had God's moral law. They would neither have it in written or orally recited to them. That was an exclusive privilege to them. And it would start at a young age. Their parents would have taught it to them. The rabbis in the synagogues would have been a place where they would have learned, memorized, recited it. Yet Paul recognized that these non-Jews by nature do what the law requires. You see, though Gentiles don't have the external moral law that the Jews do, they do have some revelation. They have a natural revelation, which is externally revealed in creation as written in Romans 1.20. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. And now in our verse today, we see that everyone, every person, also has a form of revelation inside of themselves. But who are these Gentiles in terms of their spiritual condition before God? And admittedly, admittedly, this is a tough question. Some believe that these Gentiles here in verse 14 must be Gentile Christian converts who now have the spirit of God. Otherwise, how else would they be enabled to do what the law requires in their heart? However, it's strange that Paul would speak of every single group of humans to be under judgment, only then to suddenly talk about those who are saved. Also, it's not too far-fetched to think that Gentile Christians in the early church would have likely been taught the Old Testament too, or aspects of it in relation to what Jesus spoke after, which would become the New Testament. Therefore, it's best to see Paul is speaking about unbelieving Gentiles here. And he does so to prove to these religious Jews that no form or type of law is ultimately able to save them. 
You see, God's standard isn't hearing the law or possessing it. It's obedience, his moral precepts. And so these Gentiles aren't perishing because of their lack of the law that the religious Jews possess. Therefore, when Gentiles do the demands of the law within them, what it's doing is it's functioning as a law that they are accountable for. Now, some of you might object to this. You rarely understand that no one is declared righteous by merit or the works or actions. And again, we'll see that in Romans 3.20. Even the good deeds that unbelievers do are like filthy rags stained by sinful motives, driven by selfish ends rather than glorifying and worshiping God. And that's true. That's straight from Isaiah 64.6. And not only that, everyone fails to choose and do what is good perfectly. But at the same time, this passage acknowledges that unbelievers can, in a sense, do moral good. So while it's not a good where God would declare them to be righteous, they can make morally good decisions and ethical choices, even if they do so imperfectly. And they, and they still suffer from the same radically corrupted hearts, which affects people's thinking and prevents them from acting morally and with the right motives 100% of the time. Um, during my college years at UC Riverside, I was living with a non-Christian friend. I knew from my hometown back in Sacramento, and we spent a lot of time together since we were both business majors and took the same classes together. And every weekend, we would drive out to Roland Heights for two main reasons, Taiwanese food, groceries, oh yeah, actually three, to get some boba. And after leaving a restaurant this one time and stuffing ourselves with food, we felt like, well, I think we should walk it off. And so we took a leisurely stroll outside in the afternoon. I spotted a little old lady who looked like she was struggling to carry her heavy bag of groceries across this long intersection, right? She was walking slowly across this long intersection at a crosswalk. And the walk-like countdown was quickly ending. So what did I do? I, I tried to help her. I approached her and asked, let me help you with that. And she was initially hesitant and probably scared because, and startled for a few seconds because she realized I was maybe trying to jack her groceries. Maybe that's what was going through her mind. Or maybe there was a language barrier because she only spoke uh, Taiwanese or, or Chinese or something like that. So that was probably what she was going, going on in her mind until she realized, oh, maybe this guy's trying to help me. Now you might be thinking, oh, Chris, he's such a good guy who loves God and loves people, right? Now, well, I see some laughter. Well, if you're, if, if you're skeptical or flat out unimpressed, or maybe even thinking that's a pretty weak flex, bro. My sentiments are with you 100%. Why? Because what I did, which seemed to be a good thing to do at the time, is something non-believers have the capacity to do and often demonstrate through their own actions. My non-Christian friend that I was with would have offered to help had I not approached her first. History reveals that people of various nations without access to God's special revelation contained in the Mosaic law can still recognize and do what is morally good. Even non-Christians can perform heroic acts like putting him or herself at risk to stop an active shooter on a train. And so while we recognize that people are not inherently good and righteous before a perfectly holy God, we acknowledge that unbelievers can act morally in a way that corresponds to God's law given to the Jewish people. There is some overlap. 
Not every human being is as bad to the bone or as evil as they could possibly be, possibly be 24-7. And because if that were the case, we would have all killed each other by now. That would be called utter depravity, which would mean that we always sin to the greatest extent possible in whatever we do. But the Bible doesn't teach that we are utterly depraved. The Bible teaches that we are totally depraved. We're as bad off as we could be to put us at enmity with God. And sin taints, sin taints everything that we do and all that we are. Now, Paul's whole point isn't to discuss justification by faith alone yet. His point is to help these religious hypocrites see that they haven't escaped the purview of God's judgment. Hypocrites who think merely possessing truth is going to justify and save them in the future. The Gentiles have a law too. And that only goes to show that these religious hypocrites are all the more condemned. The religious hypocrites thought they stood on a solid understanding of what justified themselves before God, merely having possession or access to God's word. But in reality, Paul is taking away every single Jenga block until their whole foundation is dismantled and they see their need for Jesus. But back to the Gentiles we were talking about. It isn't just certain people with access to God's law that are able to recognize murder, rape, other forms of immorality to be wrong, to be not good. It isn't just Christians who understand that cheating, lying, slandering to be wrong. Those are things that are taught and believed by many at a young age. It's also why we have lawyers in courts to try to bring justice for perpetrated evil or immoral actions towards others. That's why we have certain laws in society and agreed upon standards of ethics that closely mirrors or parallels that of the, the Bible. Unbelievers can still be respectful to their parents. Business owners owned by non-Christians can still operate honestly and still exude a strong worth ethic rather than being lazy. Unbelievers can have faithful marriages. Unbelieving parents can still love and care for their children. How is this possible as unbelievers who have not been exposed to God's word? Verse 15 and 16 tells us. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secret of men by Christ Jesus. So the Gentiles by nature are able to do moral actions the law requires as spoken of in verse 14 because the work of the law is written on their hearts. People do moral good because the knowledge of God's law, though imperfect, though not as specific as the law of Moses given to the Jews, is inside of them. It's there. Everyone has a form of God's law, moral law written in them. It's inborn. This is an instinctive knowledge between right and wrong. God has externally revealed himself in creation as one Romans 1.20 states, but God has also revealed himself internally in the hearts of every person. He has revealed his morality in the hearts of all of us because we are all made in the image of God. And because God is a moral God, you and I are moral creatures. We make moral decisions. Why? Because we're naturally born with an internal sense of what is right and what is wrong. All of us are born with morals and our morals are, are faulty because of the effect of sin which pollutes this world and our ability to think and act properly, but we still have morals. 
And our morals are guided by what's called here our conscience. All of us have been given a conscience. You can think of your conscience as that little voice only you can hear that tells you what is right and what is wrong. And I'm speaking figuratively here. If you actually hear little voices in your head, please come see me afterwards. I would love to speak with you. But your conscience is what informs you, your heart to, to stay away from this or stay away from that. And some of you, when hearing the word conscience, might think of that old movie Pinocchio, right? With Jiminy Cricket, the conscience that Pinocchio had to guide him to live as a real boy. An il illustration, as imperfect as it is, is to think of your conscience as that little angel resting on your shoulder as you deliberate what decision to make, calmly whispering or telling you not to listen to that other fellow's voice sitting on your other shoulder. You see, your conscience is essentially your awareness, your, your sense of what you believe to be right and what you believe to be wrong. It functions as a guide. It functions as a, a moral alert system. Your conscience, yes, it, it can fail you, just like a smoke alarm with low batteries. Your conscience can be more sensitive than others. It can be dulled compared to others. And we don't always follow our conscience. But by mere fact of having a conscience, it demonstrates we are born with morals. And that is why your conscience can create conflicting thoughts inside of you. It can at times lead you to feel either accused or excused for your actions or the decisions that you've made. That's why these Gentiles who don't have the law that the Jews have access to are condemned for their sin. They fail to do what is right and do what is wrong by the internal law written on their heart. A person's conscience will continue to accuse or excuse the thoughts of him or her throughout his entire life. And it will find its ultimate importance in this future judgment. Jesus Christ will judge every secret skeleton hidden in the closet of your life. All things will be revealed and your conscience is going to be there too. When the reel of your life, that video is replayed for God to see. Not that he doesn't already know, but in the court of God. And your conscience is going to be there. And it will bear witness in the supreme court of God. For everything done that is morally good, your conscience isn't going to say anything. But for every sin and transgression, every immoral thought, every instance of idolatry in your heart, it's going to accuse you and testify against you on the witness stand. And this will not only be for Gentiles. As the text says, it will be for all men, all people. But we might ask at this point, why is Christ's future judgment a role the Father has given to the Son, according to the Paul's gospel? Well, it's because Paul understood that God's judgment to be fundamentally tied to the good news of salvation. The reality of a present and future judgment helps us to see the glory of the cross. We will only begin to appreciate the person and the work of Jesus when we have first acknowledged who we truly are before a holy God. That without Christ, left to our own sin, left to our own devices, we stand as one condemned. We stand accused for our sin and we are declared guilty. And this condemnation continues into verse 17. And that brings us to our second point this evening. Privileged knowledge reveals hypocrisy. Privileged knowledge reveals hypocrisy. Starting in verse 17, but if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law 
And if you are, you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. Let's stop right there. If it wasn't clear before that Paul wanted religious Jews to consider his words in verse 12 to 16, because they're not identified as Jews yet, it's clear as day now. The audience is explicitly stated. It's as if Paul is saying, yes, all those people who don't have the same privileged possession of God's word will be condemned. But what about you? Let's talk about you for a minute. And he begins with a series of rhetorical questions. And these questions help to provoke the hearer to ask these questions of themselves. And these questions are dripping with sarcasm. You can tell Paul's tone is ramping up in intensity, like something you would hear in an argument that, or, or that's about to get heated or someone's about to get roasted. And verse 17, 18 shows how religious privilege and access to knowledge led to an arrogant pride. They had the privilege of belonging to a chosen people, their reliance on the law and their special, special relationship with God. But that privilege led to self-righteousness. They mastered knowing the law by quoting it, referencing, going into all the details of it. And this became their justification. Verse 19 to 20 reveals that God's chosen people fell short of the expectation and the responsibility for being a light to the other nations. They were supposed to show others that what it meant to, 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 to know and worship the one true God of creation. Israel was supposed to be a banner nation to all the other neighboring nations that the one true God that they worshiped was distinct because of the way they conduct their lives in relation to God. God spoke to Israel's purpose when he said in Isaiah 42, 6 to 7, I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness and I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. But rather than drawing people away from their idolatry, they got caught up in other people's idolatry. Yet they can continue to see themselves as important and place themselves on an elevated level, on a pedestal. They had more knowledge and truth than the Gentiles. And having that greater knowledge, they have a greater accountability before God. Each of the points of privilege are legitimate aspects by which the religious Jews were blessed as God's chosen people. Praxis, while these verses are directly addressed to religious Jews who saw themselves privileged over others, we too can rest in religious hypocrisy and think that we're privileged over other people. And can you see yourself in their shoes? Are you able to see your own religious hypocrisy? It would serve us well to replace religious Jew here with Christian. Religious hypocrisy cuts through history to our present day so that we might look at ourselves in the mirror of God's word and see our very own blind spots. Oh, you call yourself a Christian? You know his will and approve what is excellent because you're instructed by all those Twitter and Instagram quotes about God? Oh, look at you. You're a guide to the blind. Someone doesn't know an answer to a Bible question, but guess what? You do. Let me look it up in my John MacArthur study Bible since I don't actually know. I got you. You're a light to those who are in darkness. Oh yeah, I'm part of the one true church. 
lighthouse. Too bad all those other churches aren't like us. And in our privilege of being exposed to expository preaching, being exposed to biblical counseling, and having access to, to so many different ministries, fellowships that our churches, that other churches might not have, we become prideful. We feel as if we've arrived. Other people have to get on our level, right? Most of us sitting here are not thinking we are going to be justified because of possession of knowledge. But think for a minute of the things that you do possess, the things that you do have. Think of something that you possess externally, which makes you think that you're right with God. Makes you think you're justified. What is that justification card that you pull out to let other people know that you're right and you're okay with God? I've often asked people to share their personal testimony of faith. And by doing so, my hope is to try to discern whether they've truly understand, understood the gospel and whether they place their faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior for their justification. And it's not like I'm, I'm trying, to, trying to shame them or if they don't know the gospel or they don't mention, mention it in their testimony. But it's because I don't want them to have a false assurance of external religion, but miss the heart of true religion rooted in the gospel. It's because I hope that they place their faith in Jesus Christ rather than boast in outward religious accomplishments to justify themselves for the reason for why they're a Christian. And so we must not evaluate and assess our understanding and our spiritual growth by the wrong metrics. Oh, that person used to go to that church? Oh, he or she must be solid. Oh, oh that person must be very mature because he or she is steeped in sound doctrine. Oh, that person sat under the teaching and shepherding of this one well-known pastor. Oh, they must be mature. Oh, that pastor went to the master's seminary? Bravo. But all of those things put together will not justify you before God. Brothers and sisters, we must be warned that no one is justified by merely knowing something about God, knowing something about Christianity, because mental assent of knowledge does not save. The demons know their theology too. Satan has probably more knowledge of scripture than all of us here combined. But God isn't impressed with your outward profession. God desires true followers to bear spiritual fruit. So give praise that his spirit enables you, if you're a Christian here tonight, as it says in Galatians 5, to 23, that you're able to, to, and you ought to grow in love, in joy, in peace, in patience, in kindness, in goodness, in faithfulness in gentleness, and in self-control. When there is a disconnect between the image that we project before others compared to who we truly are in private, in our private secret life, uh, thought life, or actual lives, that's called hypocrisy. It's called play acting. And then we're no better than the religious Pharisees when we play act Christianity. We become masters of masquerading on Thursday and Sunday. We adorn pious religiosity like a, a sparkling suit or dress at the weekly religious ball with other like-minded folks gathered. But as you don your religious mask, and I'm not talking about your PPE mask right now, what does your private life and thoughts say about how you truly feel and desire? Is your claim to be a Christian just an external veneer? 
It would serve our hearts well to subject ourselves to the same self-probing probing questions. We ought to examine our hearts for religious hypocrisy. Everything Paul has been saying crescendos to unleash high notes of condemnations for his hearers. Look with me now as we examine specific cases of hypocrisy, starting verse 21. You then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? I studied this a lot this week. Sometimes thinking, should I just sit down and go home at this point? In other words, do you practice what you preach? Do you merely love God's word for its concepts and so you can instruct and counsel others, but not your own heart? Beloved, we must not treat God's word as good to know, but not to grow. But Paul's not done. He asks, do you steal? Do you commit adultery? And perhaps the more unusual one on the list, do you rob temples? Now, robbing temples might have been sacrilege against God by some, some of the Jews. Robbing temples may have been holding back ties, like what we've studied in our series in the book of Malachi. And there are some even historical records and testimonies that some of the Jews took idols from the temples to resell it in the market for coin. But the idea is that they took from others what didn't belong to them. Right? They had this hypocrisy. I must remind us again that Paul did not mean every single Jewish person did these things, but these sins pervaded the contradictory lifestyle within Judaism and the nation of Jews at that time. Stealing violated the eighth commandment. Adultery violated the seventh commandment. And that's why they're called out for boasting in the law, yet breaking it. Now, while we may think that we're free from such hypocrisy as professing Christians, we must realize that this list is not exhaustive. But the effect of these probing questions are the same for us here tonight. They reveal the many ways that we sometimes talk the talk, but we don't walk the walk. And not only that, they fail to obey what God demands despite having more access to God's word. They were supposed to be the chosen people. They were supposed to live as a light to the Gentiles, not join them. They lost whatever high ground they thought they had by their conduct. And that's what made these religious hypocrites sin all the more egregious. They looked down on others while they themselves were flawed. Their hypocrisy revealed that they were great at pretending to be someone that they truly weren't. Maybe it was to please other people. That's why they did it. Maybe it was to please themselves. Maybe it was so that they felt pleased when people respect them and thought highly of them. But it didn't please God. So Praxis, in what ways do you, do you confess to believe something but act differently? Or consider this, do you look down on others thinking you're better than them while justifying your own sinful flaws in the very same area? That's hypocrisy. Lacking grace and kindness, but expecting grace and kindness from others is hypocrisy. We must not be self-deceived thinking we can fake it until we can make it when we appear before the judgment seat of Christ with our conscience. We must confess and repent of our sin. I like how Tim, Kel Tim Keller, Pastor Tim Keller, points out this subtle yet real form of hypo hypocrisy when he writes, there's a, a moral superiority, an inbuilt bragging. If you are relying on spiritual achievements, you will have to look down on those who have failed in the same areas. You will be at best cold and at worst condemning towards those who are struggling. 
rather than speaking words of encouragement to the struggler, helping to lift them up, you speak words of gossip about them to others to show yourself in a comparatively good light. And a sign of this condition is that people don't want to share their problems with you. And you are very defensive if others point out your problems to you. Praxis, I hope you are able to see hypocrisy for what it is in your own lives, both spiritually and in your relationship to God and others. You know, you can play the hypocrite when someone asks you how you're doing and you say everything is going okay, when in fact, everything is not okay. And your hypocrisy is maintained when you, you allow these outward appearances to grow in greater disparity from your, your personal, your real life. How? By refusing to confess sin, by refusing to share with others and asking for accountability. What you are doing is you're widening the gap between who you appear to be on the outside and who you are amidst the messiness of life. And this ultimately has consequences. Hypocrisy has consequences in your relationship to God. The consequence of hypocrisy is that it dishonors God. It, it disgraces God. Verse 24 writes, For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. The consequence of hypocrisy is that it dishonors God. When religious hypocrites live a, a life distasteful to those outside, it ruins their testimony for Jesus. And Paul's quoting Isaiah 52, 5, when the foreign nations such as Babylon, the Babylonians, despised the God of Israel as long as Israel was in bondage. You see, Israel's disobedience in the past had repeated itself in the present, according to Paul. They once brought shame on God in their guilt and exile, and now they dishonor God by their disobedience. They too need redemption. They too need to be saved. We all need to be saved. Even, this, even the religious hypocrites who have knowledge of God while lacking the right heart for God. And in this way, all of us, all of us are hypocrites. As Christians, we must ask ourselves the same question. Does your life attract others towards God to want to worship your God? Is your life a large billboard advertisement, like 405, right, for God that's, a, that, that's attractive and beautiful? Or does your life say, Keep clear of my God, as evidenced by your personal witness. God is dishonored when we live hypocritically and cease to be light in a world of darkness. We who have been given even more light than the Jews, we with the whole counsel of scripture, we with audio sermons, blog articles, Christian books and publishers, we with so much access privilege when it comes to Christian resources that even Christians of other rural nations and parts of the world lack that type of access or not even have a Bible in their language. It is a shame when we have been given so much light that we would then turn to live duplicitous life and dishonor the name of Christ in the public sphere and then add feel to the blasphemy of God by these non-believers. But maybe you're here tonight and you're not a Christian. Maybe you're just tuning in to explore what Christianity and church is all about. You know, we're, we're really glad that you're here. But know this, it's, it's true that some unbelievers sometimes express disbelief in a God because of the horrible examples and witness of some. Maybe you're turned off from those so-called hypocritical Christians that you've encountered or met growing up. 
Some of you may have grown up in church and what turned you off about Christianity were those hypocrites claiming to be Christians and which led you to become jaded. But I want you to know this truth. Even if professing Christians treated non-believers perfectly, non-believers, non-Christians would still blaspheme God. They would still excuse themselves and attribute any fault or culpability for rejecting God by placing the sole blame on someone else. Sure, a Christian with a bad testimony adds to an unbeliever's impulse to reject God, but that doesn't excuse non-believers for their own rejection of God. And so then the real question then is, are you a hypocrite? Or perhaps are you a non-religious hypocrite? Even the non-religious claim to be more righteous than they truly are when they call out Christians. And I'm not justifying like Christians, you know, who fall away to scandals, right? And bring reproach on the name of Christ. Many, but many do know that they are not perfect people. And because all of us are hypocrites, all of us are under the condemnation of God's wrath. Yet here is the good news if you're listening or with us here tonight. There is a man who wasn't a hypocrite. His name was Jesus, the son of God. He was fully God and fully man. And he did what none of us could accomplish. He knew God perfectly and lived in accordance with that knowledge perfectly. And he lived a life where he always practiced what he preached. And there was no hypocrisy in him. And he did this up until he died on the cross for hypocrites like us. And then he rose on the third day, demonstrating that he is the one that we should look to in faith so that we might be forgiven for our hypocrisy. That we might be forgiven and reconciled to a good and holy God. A God in whom there is no hypocrisy. A God who makes promises a God who keeps promises and a God who acts on his promises perfectly. The power of hypocrisy is destroyed for those who have tasted and seen the loveliness of Christ in the gospel for believers. And Christ is with us through the Holy Spirit as we struggle against sin and temptation and persevere in doing what is good and lovely, even on the worst of our days. And we can hope and we can long for that day when we come before the judgment seat of Christ, the judgment seat of God, and we can rest in the verdict of not guilty. For Jesus paid it all for hypocrites like me and you. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, all of us come undone. All of us realize our own hypocrisy, where we would ideally think of ourselves as being good, as being righteous, Yet even all of us have fallen short of that, Lord. And it happens not just once, but it happens many times throughout our lives, Lord. But praise be to God that there was one who wasn't a hypocrite to die in our place, Jesus Christ. And so even when we encounter the darkness of hypocrisy, the darkness of people's hearts, Lord, and how that hypocrisy does not please you, but dishonors you. Praise be to God, Lord, 
that through the dark tunnel, as we study the book of Romans, there is hope, a greater and greater hope, a, a ray that becomes brighter and brighter as we see our need for Jesus Christ. And then we rest and we are reminded that Jesus Christ paid it all. Thank you again for the opportunity that we have to be under your word and may your spirit continue to work in us. Not just that we might be hearers of the word, but that we might also be doers of the word. In Christ's name we pray, amen.